I'm hopeful that this will emerge and people will find their agency and let go of their fear of their fan base and bottom line to really speak truth to power or sing truth to power, shall we say. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Trisha Rose, and I'm here with my dear brother and friend and colleague, Dr. Cornell West, and we are here on the tightrope. We are so excited to be able to have more conversations, and I'm going to say a few things and then invite Dr. West to comment and get his thinking on it. It's always exciting to hear what he does with things. That opening song, I just want to make a few comments about it. So powerful, sung there by Harry Belafonte. We will be discussing him and his amazing daughter, Gina Belafonte, today. But, you know, that song, I I wasn't sure when it was sung most urgently, and it was literally right after the Civil War. So this opening phrase that was basically, I'd rather be dead in my grave than be a slave, it was a literal, a literal version initially. And that's very powerful for us to remember. But I was also so moved by the voices in unison and the connectivity that it produced. And it made me think about the fact that there's only one little upside to this COVID situation that we're in. And that is that I think people are listening in groups and families are listening together and sharing things together in ways that they might not have been as easily able to do before we were on collective social lockdown. This is an important theme, and Cornell, I'd love to hear what you're thinking about this, but you know that we need to connect across generations as much as we can and try to bring the tradition forward, but also give young people ways of understanding the past that allow them to make something new. I know you've thought about these things for quite a while, so I just wanted to invite you in to say hello and thank you for being part of this, and, and let me know what you're thinking. Oh, my dear sister Trisha, Professor Rose, you know it's always a blessing and a joy to be in conversation with you. And I am with you 100% in terms of being so deeply moved by that powerful, powerful artistry of our dear brother Harry Belafonte, as well as that choir. As you were saying, it's not just a sound, but it's the spirit behind it. And when you have someone like Harry Belafonte, who is one of the great artists and towering freedom fighters of the last hundred years, really, building on the rich legacy of his mentor, Paul Robeson, his very good friend, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, But then it adds his own injection. You can call it the Belafonte injection. You know, he got that rich Jamaican calypso. He got a temperament, was overflow of love. And of course, he's got that unique and singular smile that we associate with one of the most handsome brothers of the 20th century, too. Let's just be honest about it. So it's that rich combination that allows him to become a crucial part of this longer tradition that, as you rightly say, 
goes back really hundreds of years, and it's the uh, expression of deep humanity and creativity of a hated and haunted people still dishing out love and justice. Mm, yes. And, you know, because we're going to have Gina Belafonte, his daughter, on, I'm wondering oh, yeah. if you could share a little bit about what role you think families play, right, in terms of thinking critically, where we learn to be activists, where do we learn to stand up to injustice? I mean, certainly we learn from our public mentors and we learn from people in our communities. But I think families are incredibly important. I'm sure you have had lots of inspiring contacts from your mom, your brother, your father. Maybe share a little bit, Cornell, about how your families have been a key source for your own development to, to stand up to injustice. Well, I know. I mean, I am who I am because Irene and Clifton loved me so, because Shiloh Baptist Church loved me so. But mm-hmm. it's also a choice that I make because I still got gangster proclivities. I could have chose to go somewhere else and do somewhere else. And that's what I love about our dear sister, Gina Belafonte, that she comes from political and artistic royalty, both in the Black tradition, but also in the American and really the human tradition. But she chose to be an artist and an actress who rendered her services to freedom and truth. She chose to be connected to organic organizations on the ground. So Sankofa, I run into her all the time. It could be Ferguson, it could be New York, it could be Justice League in Manhattan. I mean, she's there because these are choices. And it's very difficult, I think, and I've never experienced this, but it's very difficult to be a child of someone who has such high visibility. I mean, Harry Belafonte is one of the most famous people in the whole world. Right. I mean, that's a whole different thing. I love Dad, but Dad had Shiloh and Glen Elder and Southland Park Drive and Alpha Phi Alpha <laughs> and a few others. <laughs> he was not world famous in that way. And Mom, bless her heart, was not world famous either. So Sister Gina had a certain kind of weight that I've never experienced. But you are so right that the families provide the exposure, but the children have to follow through and decide for themselves which way they want to go. You've had that same challenge in your own life too, though, Sister Tricia, with your wonderful uh, parents, you know? You're right. They have been very important in terms of shaping me as well. Neither one of them are world famous either, so we share that for sure. I'm not sure who knows my mom and dad. But yeah, this um, the constant critical dialogue around the table. I had to figure out how to get my elbows in to make a decent argument as early as seven or eight. As early as seven or eight, they would be like, that argument doesn't make sense. I'd be like, dang, I got to go back to the drawing board over here. I can barely draw and had to go back to it anyway. So there was a lot of energy around critical engagement and not just believing whatever society was saying. So there was a lot of that and that was important, but you're absolutely right about the choices we have to make. Uh, It is very much about a personal commitment that you make out here. But families help direct you and give you the building blocks. Oh, yes. When you have examples, I mean, Sister Gina, we should talk to us about Julie, her uh, her magnificent mother, and, of course, Brother Harry himself, exemplifying vision, integrity, commitment to something bigger than themselves, like freedom for Black people, freedom for poor people, freedom for working people. They are always connected, the internationalism and the universalism that embraces all. 
with the particularity of oppression and the particularity of mm-hmm. subjugation, but never allowing that oppression or subjugation to be the last word. And I think all three of us in that sense have been blessed with parents who exemplified so much of the best, but we still had to choose. Yes, right. That's the beautiful tension because for some children, their parents may not be that involved and they need to know they can make a choice the way they want to make a choice. Absolutely. Before we turn to our distinguished and committed and lovely guest, I'm wondering if you could just imagine that there are families listening, right? This is my own imagination. Maybe in the question and answer, we'll, we'll hear from some families. But what would you say to children or to young people who are listening right now with their families, or even if they're not, but they want to make a difference for Black liberation, but they feel pressured by the sort of mainstream culture to avoid that kind of radical choice, that if they don't follow and toe the line of profits, of high sales, of saying what everybody needs to hear, that they won't be accepted, that they won't be successful, that the terms of what's valued out here means that they have to choose between maybe their own livelihood, right? What would we tell them how to stay strong in this kind of a situation? Yeah, I think it would echo the spiritual genius of the song that was sung by Harry Belafonte and the choir. Mm -hmm. What really breaks the back of fear? Before I be a slave, I be buried in my grave. What Mm -hmm. breaks the back? of being intimidated. Well, it's love, it's compassion, it's being tied to something bigger than you. So young folk, you've got to be able to love and respect yourselves in such a way that you recognize you received a love and respect from others that tied you to causes bigger than you. It could be religious in origin. So if you're Muslim, it's Allah. We saw it in Malcolm X. If it's Buddhism, we see it in Bell Hooks. If it's Christianity, we see it in Brother Martin and Fannie Lou. If you're agnostic, it's like James Baldwin and Audre Lorde. They had a love that allowed them to break the back of a fear so that any kind of status quo or any kind of establishment couldn't instill a fear in you to force you to conform and can force you to fit in and be so well adjusted to injustice while you feel good about yourself. It's got to be something deeper that pushes you. And it begins with mama's love, daddy's love, grandmama's love, granddaddy's love, aunt's love, friend's love. And then as you grow and mature, lo and behold, you start having relationships with the dead that you never knew. You fall in love with Frederick Douglass. You fall in love with Harriet Tubman. You fall in love with Sojourn the Truth. Ooh, well, that's so powerful. I was thinking when you talked about fear, how important it is to remind these same young people that fear does not often show up as fear. That's uh, right. When you're truly mortally frightened, right, you know you're fearful. But when you're afraid to be devalued, to be marginalized, to be laughed at, to be shamed, to be accused of being irrelevant, then that shows up in very indirect ways in terms of a fear, but not a fear that you necessarily recognize. And so it's so important to remind young people that that fear shows up in so many different ways. Of course, and so does the courage 
that we need. But wow, that's so powerful. And I love no, this fall in love with your ancestors. That's but your point is so very important because fear is not always a bad thing. I have a fear of snakes. You know, if I see a snake, <laughs> I'm so glad that fear kicked in because it's time for me to get moving. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. But when it comes to white supremacy, I'm not going to allow white supremacist authorities. I'm not going to allow capitalist authorities. I'm not going to allow imperial authorities. I'm not going to allow patriarchal, homophobic, transphobic authorities to make me so fearful that I consent to their domination. So in that sense, the courage is something that never eliminates the fear. It allows us to work through the fear. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, fear is a crucial mechanism. But as we creatures in nature and history, in terms of, you know, you see a bear coming your way, it's time to get moving. Fear is to let you know. That's the yeah, that's not the time to get brave. <laughs> oh, no, just you and three bears. You better, you right, got to get right. moving. That's right, true. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's really true. But, you know, I have to say, just very quickly, you know, you're very brave about this fighting, standing up against white supremacy. It's a little scary out here. You know, I mean, I can imagine a lot of people basically saying, you watch this footage of just recently, this Buffalo policeman just pushing down a a man who was in his 70s, hitting his head on the concrete. When another cop leans back to try to help him up, the other cop pushes the cop away, like, don't help him. And I think to myself, you know, a lot really can go wrong in an instant. It's frightening. I mean, it's you're right. Absolutely. But all they can do is kill you, though. That's the thing about it. (laughs) That's all, Court. That's all. That's all they can do. That's all they can do. Well, Brother Martin wow. said, I'd rather be dead than afraid. What was the sister? Mary Pleasant, the first uh, mm. Godfather of Human Rights, the black sister who gave John Brown over a million, almost a million dollars in the 1850s. She used to start off almost every speech. I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. Mm. Now, you see, there's something that goes into the shaping of a soul to say that. You see, Harry Belafonte yeah. has said that. Paul Robeson has said that. Victoria Garvin has said that. Ella Baker has said that. So all they can do is kill you in that sense. Now, granted, you know, most of us don't want to die prematurely, but we're going to die one way or the other. The question is how you're going to use your death as a form of service to something bigger than you. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. You've been doing that your whole life, though, Sister Trisha. I've seen your schedule running here with this group, community with groups with the sisters and your book in terms of dealing with forms of domestic violence, that's a way of sacrificing giving of yourself mm-hmm. and being willing to acknowledge that in the end, the logic of that is you're going to run out of gas one day. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's feeling more like on the horizon than it used to. <laughs> that's true for, that's true for that's both true. of them. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it is true that the best of our tradition, and certainly how I was raised as well, reminds us that there are, you know, there's some virtues that are higher than survival. And that's what you're basically that's right. asking. That's exactly right. About. And so we couldn't really be luckier than to have Gina Belafonte with us today, who is definitely, has been bequeathed a tradition where there are values much higher than survival uh, that we've learned from her father and from the organizations that she continues. It's my great joy to introduce Gina Belafonte to our listening audience today. And briefly, just in case you're not aware, she's a native New Yorker and is the executive director of Sankofa. Sankofa.org, if you want to go check that out right now. It's a social justice organization that educates, motivates, and activates artists and allies in service of grassroots movements and equitable change. And she's also a member of the Daughters of the Movement, a sisterhood and social justice activism group, and many other social justice creative projects, including 
the really terrific award-winning HBO documentary, Sing Your Song, that explores the life and legacy of her father, Harry Belafonte. Gina, it's a pleasure to have you here on The Tightrope. Thank you so much for having me. I really deeply appreciate the opportunity. Oh, no, it's our blessing entirely. Absolutely. So so we started by talking a bit about this fantastic rendition, Oh, Freedom, that your father sung. I'm wondering if that brought any thoughts to mind or our conversation generated any reflections. What's your feeling about that song? Well, that song is so deep into the core of my marrow and really exemplifies so much of the struggle and the resiliency and proclamation that we make when we enter into social justice activism. There's a conviction in that song, in that music, in the voices of the choir and my father who is leading them in this rendition. And the song just invokes for me such a sense of hope and power. And I really, really love it. And I have to say, perhaps quite biasly, there are many songs that my father sings and the way in which he had sort of collaborated with other artists on the arrangements of certain tunes, I never really noticed until I started listening to other versions of some of the songs that he has covered in his career, how nuanced and how deeply emotional so much of the arrangements of the music that my father creates is and holds to this day. Yeah, I love that song. I think it's a powerful song. Almost anyone who sings it, it sort of straightens my back up and I feel like I'm ready to move forward and and get busy. Wow. Well, you have been busy in a number of different ways on a number of different fronts, my dear sister Gina. Absolutely. But I want to ask you this question, namely that as a artist in your own right, on the stage, as producer, as a cultural figure who helps green light and facilitate other artists doing their work, what does the state of progressive artists in general, Black artists in particular, look to you in light of this present moment of the Black freedom struggle? Well, this is something that is strangely enough been a conversation and a dialogue I've been in for the last couple of weeks Many people, just like we often think that we need to find a leader, quote unquote, someone who is going to be put on some pedestal somewhere, who's going to tell us what to do, where to go, how to do it, how to be. I think we also tend to search for where's the next Prince? Where's the next Marvin Gaye? Where's the next Nina Simone? You know, who's going to be the next Harry Belafonte? Where do we find? And the systems of our country in particular, our capitalist system has really sort of suppressed and put a tight control over the airwaves and what we're able to hear and what we're able to find as our cultural heartbeat. So right now, it's a very interesting time how many, many musical artists in particular are looking to the legacy of my father and others like him who are using their platforms as a megaphone for social justice activism. And yet I still am seeing sort of a trepidation in their lyrics. I'm not seeing them really full on, really saying, let's get it on. 
I see a lot and hear a lot of descriptive uh, lyrics of what's happening in the moment, of stating what is happening or what has happened. But what I'm not really hearing, to be quite honest, is something far more hopeful in where do we go from here and having a deeper imagining of what our future should and could and will be and look like. So this is an ongoing conversation really right now around where are our modern day folk singers, regardless of genre. I'm talking about lyrical content. And so I'm hopeful that this will emerge and people will find their agency and let go of their fear of their fan base and bottom line to really speak truth to power or sing truth to power, shall we say. Now, on the stage and in film, it's a different story altogether. I think the stage has always been far more blatant in its use of that cultural platform and medium to be very sort of in your face. In films as well, there's a little more leeway there in terms of envisioning stories about people, truth or fiction, that have made change. But again, I find a lot of what we're telling is about our history, which we need to. We need to reclaim Mm -hmm. those stories for sure. But where are some of the inspirational love stories of Black people that are true and really ancient, (laughs) you know? know, We see uh, certainly in documentaries a tremendous amount of amazing information and clarification and ways in which to be educated on our history. But I'm hopeful that when we see things like the show Insecure or Queen Sugar or Atlanta, I mean, more and more stories that are coming forward of our people showing love and celebration and resilience and how not only the way in which the world is, but how it could be. No, that's powerful. That's powerful. Yes, that's so powerful. I wonder if we could drill down a little bit and talk a little further about something you said near the beginning, which is the importance of a kind of lyrical vision, right? That it's not just about a description of what is, but it's the political, social, emotional, ethical disposition and vision in relationship to what is. That does seem, you really hit a nerve. I I think there's something very important there, which is, you know, know, figuring out why this vision, which there's been so much uh, richness for in the music, in the arts in general, in the community, in the churches for so long. Why is that being challenged? And I think that's really as far as people feel that they can go and still maintain a multiracial mainstream audience, right? Because you can describe what is and then not get into much trouble, right? But if you start making claims about what that circumstance means and what you want instead of that circumstance, now you really do stand a chance of losing Lots and lots of people. But, you know, Cornell, you've talked a lot about this over the years, right? Mm, Yeah. But I think Sister Gina's point about there not being enough radical imagination, you know, Robert Kelly and others have taught us the importance of freedom dreams. And I think in the younger generation, there is this preoccupation, and rightly so, with the future. It could either be negative in terms of Afro-pessimism, or it could be Afrofuturism with Brother Ronaldo, 
Anderson and the others, but this sense of what Octavia Butler means when she said we got to write ourselves into a future Mm -hmm. that allows the unleashing of our imagination so that we authorize an alternative to reality. August Wilson used to say, Black people, anytime Black people speak, sing, perform, they authorize an alternative reality to the nightmare that they're living in. But then the question becomes Sister Gina's question, which is, what is the scope and breadth and depth of that imagination? If all we do is provide some fascinating descriptions and don't have enough courage to really radically project something different, then white supremacy still remains a point of reference, even when we are resisting it. Yes. I mean, I find so much of our music from earlier days is a call to action. It is a call to a visioning and heart opening to your imagination of what could be. Interestingly enough, there's a show that was most recently on, I don't know what network, it's called Hollywood. And is it the best show that was ever on TV in terms of all of its components? No. But one of the things that it did that I was deeply moved by was that it took a historical context, a historical time, and it imagined what it might be had it been different. So while it used true historical figures to anchor it in reality, it imagined a Hollywood where, yes, there was discrimination, but in that same time period, there was an immediate revelation of a shift around that racism and supremacy and privilege and power. And it just keeps resonating with me of the what if it had been different. And so as we move forward, I think we need to envision, and I'm hoping that with this most recent activity that's been happening in our country and around the world, this show of solidarity, regardless of the amount of murder and death that it brought us to this moment, that we envision a future where it is radically different from what it is right now. Absolutely. In the old school, it used to be the difference between a reformist imagination and a revolutionary imagination. And a lot of times in America, people talk about revolution, they get all nervous and think it's a matter of guns and so forth and so on. You say, well, no, no, revolution is going to make you insecure, but it is something that is an alternative to a present that is unknown. And so you have to re-equip and and re-prepare yourself. It's not going to be a matter of just trying to incrementally patch up a status quo that is shown to be so unjust and cruel. Yes. And I would challenge that what we need is not only a revolution, but we need an evolution, an evolution of our human existence, an evolution Mm -hmm. of our humanity, of our moral values. We need an evolution of how we consider and view the opposing opposites of right and wrong. And so earlier you were talking about family and talking about 
sort of legacy and impressions. And I think of my parents and I think of my own journey. And, you know, it's also, as you said, Dr. West, a choice that we make each day, Mm -hmm. because regardless of where you come from, you still have to make a choice to either engage that legacy or dismiss it and move into another space. You know, I mean, I think of my father as a young child born on this land here in the United States and sort of back and forth with a deep relationship to the island of Jamaica, where he grew up for many of his formative years. But I think of his mother, my grandmother, as a domestic worker in Harlem in the United States, being an immigrant, and my father being taken to front stoops to listen to Marcus Garvey, to listen to W.E.B. Du Bois, to listen to radical thought. So way before he was an artist, he was political. He was indoctrinated into political thought and ideology. And I think of my mother as a young white Jewish woman from the Lower West Side of New York, whose parents who are of Jewish descent, who both come from very different backgrounds as well. My grandmother from a very strictly Orthodox Jewish experience and my grandfather from a very sort of, in those days, forward-thinking communist perspective and what their union together meant in terms of being excommunicated from family. And my mother very early on becoming the only white member of an all-Black dance company of the Catherine Dunham Company. And so I think of my parents in their very early formative years getting a very political perspective and having a very specific sort of point of view that they chose to continue. So that is much of my own legacy that I also chose to embrace because it felt so good, you know, (laughs) just, you know, there's such a richness in that history. And my own child just yesterday sent me some words that she was trying to formulate around her own identity, being a Black woman, though seeing her, many would argue that she is not that. And so just the evolution of thought and perspective of our humanity is where I feel like I'm headed. Speaking of your father, Gina, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about whether or not he saw himself balancing a bit of a tightrope, right, around being an accessible, a popular musician and entertainment icon, but also standing so resolutely against the mistreatment of Black people and anybody who was being uh, mistreated at the same time. Do you have a sense of how he managed that really thin line? Yeah, you know, my father had his own reckoning and evolution in that very area. Very early on in his career, while he was on his ascendancy, on his rise, he felt the pressures of his heart and his moral center with the rise of fame. And this was also at a time when he had been in relationship with my mother. So he chose to take on psychoanalysis and he was doing a gig in the Catskills, strangely enough. And in those days, there would be sort of a program over a weekend. And he was, I guess, the headliner. And also there was a woman by the name of Janet Kennedy, who was a therapist. And so he went to a lecture of hers and decided to see if he could speak to her afterwards to say, you know, I really need some assistance. I'm finding myself being very challenged, balancing 
my life and my work. And I need some, I think, therapeutic assistance. And so she became his therapist. And in the process of going through psychoanalysis with her, as he would be divulging his most personal and intimate experiences, thoughts and feelings, she suggested that her husband, who was quote unquote manager at the time, be his manager to help him with his finances and his bookings and making choices of what to engage in on his career. And so, of course, you feel a deep sense of trust in your therapist. And so he did that. He took on her husband as his therapist. So I think you can see where I'm going already with this. There's some ethics issues brewing. But when you're vulnerable and you don't know that and you're trusting, you go with the flow. And I think that's also just to put a pin in that for a future conversation around the legacy of white supremacy and a lot of young people and their own families. So anyway, my father father was continuing in this process with this manager by the name of J. Richard Kennedy. And when he met my mother, who was also in psychoanalysis with someone very different, she began to see this relationship and questioned it with my father. And as my mother began to question it, my father also realized that in his the therapeutic process, the therapist was asking him a lot of questions about who he was hanging out with and what they were doing and what kind of activities were going on. Well, to make a very long story short, my mother said that this is not right. The way in which you even refer to your manager and your therapist as mommy and daddy. I mean, really, it was so convoluted and colluded and unhealthy. So my mother challenged it and my father asked his publicist to get information on J. Richard Kennedy and to take a confidential deep dive on who exactly is this person. And once this dossier was completed and my father was able to see who J. Richard Kennedy actually was, it was revealed that he, in fact, was an FBI informant. And so my father, as you can imagine, was deeply distressed thinking, oh my God, what have I said to this woman Mm -hmm. with her husband being an FBI informant? And in in the FBI files of both J. Richard Kennedy and my father, you can see, unfortunately, what was revealed there. But my father quickly got out of that experience. And then for the rest of his life, I think there was an underlying sense of paranoia in balancing who do I bring into the fold that I can trust And how do I sort of maintain my artistry and my cultural contribution? I mean, there was always the things around how to say it and what to say and how to be in public and all of that. But my father never really wavered from his desire to elevate voices and the consciousness of his fans. He would never compromise his artistry for the status quo or the bottom line. Mm. He just was able to, at his time, find a way to use and continue to manipulate his platform to educate and assuage his audience to a deeper consciousness of what was going on and happening in the world. And also, in some ways, I think my father was in the way he birthed the concept of world music because on his stage, he would bring sounds and rhythms and languages and voices and tones that were not in the American library, an American lexicon of musical experience. 
to answer in a very long-winded way, I think he managed it quite masterfully. Yeah. And hopefully can be an example to many. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you raise a very important question. I wish we had so much more time to wrestle with this very rich relation to the deep traditions of Black brothers and sisters and Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, that we know the ways in which, not just in the 60s, but going all the way back to the 20s, you know, you can Mm -hmm. pick up the Jewish forward and say pogrom Mm -hmm. in Georgia. And they Mm -hmm. were not talking about Kishinev in Russia. They were talking about a lynching of a Black person. So you had progressive Jewish brothers and sisters that would dish out the Muriel Rukeysers, the Noam Chomskys, the Bernie Sanders, Stanley Aronowitzes, and others, along with the Paul Robesons and the Harry Belafontes, all the way up to Danny Glover, who's in many ways a, uh, a protege. But at the same time, we have the challenges and the tensions, because human beings are human beings. You got folk making other kinds of choices in both communities. And the real challenge is going to be, can we be morally consistent across the board? so that the Jewish brothers and sisters are anti-racist, anti-apartheid across the board. Black folk are going to be concerned about anti-Jewish sentiments and what have you, but we also are free enough to tell the truth about not just the suffering of Jews in Russia and France and Pittsburgh, which are atrocious, but of Israeli occupation of Palestinians. That's that right. has nothing to do whatsoever with anti-Jewish sensibility, but trying to be morally consistent. So the issues of trust are very important here. And I think you, Gina, have been able to bring this together within your own person in a beautiful way. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. We um, just, if I can uh, jump in here for a brief moment and ask a, some a question and transition into the audience. They've been waiting. They're very excited. So the two questions are, why are the artists so important for social justice movements, Gina and Cornell? And in this time with such limited hope, where do we go for sustenance from here? Well, if I may, first of all, let me invite that there is more hope now than ever before. And we must, in our consciousness, see hope in every moment. And we must invite hope into every moment, regardless of what we might be witnessing right in front of our face. So I just wanted to start there because... Hope is, in many ways, the key, and we must challenge ourselves to find the hope. So as it relates to artists, I will say that traditionally, artists, because of the nature of the way in which they can galvanize large groups of people, have a platform and an opportunity to open hearts and minds through their cultural offering. And in their platform can relay messages, whether directly or metaphorically, that begin to bring unity, solidarity, and a deeper understanding of what is happening and where we are. And as Paul Robeson said, or as my father put in the mouth of Paul Robeson, because I'm still not convinced it was Paul Robeson who said it. <laughs> but artists are the gatekeepers of truth. We are the civilization's radical voice. We have the opportunity and the, through poetry, through dance, through music, through theater, through film, through music, we have an opportunity to transform perspectives to transmute ideas, to bring not only the past, but the future and the present all together in one. 
And so in the legacy of so many great artists that have come before us and great orators and writers, and there's just such a wealth of books to read and information for us to get because we must look to our past in order to move forward. Sankofa, which is the organization founded by my father, it is a Ghanaian word that means go back and get it. We must look to our past in order to move forward and we must reclaim what we have left behind, our youth, our stories, the truth. And so art has a way of being able to do this in ways that also hit many different kinds of peoples that are different stages of their own personal evolution and their own personal consciousness. So art plays a huge role, which is why it is always defunded first. Mm, Because this world would be so different if it was arts centric and in our boardrooms, in our policies, if there was art and artists that had voice in creating ideas and offerings and art is a powerful, powerful tool. And so it plays a huge role right now and always in our movement and in our daily existence. That is so true. I mean, we just have dialogues with Brother Andrew and Sister Jill at Harvard. Art needs to be central in the curriculum, in our educational system, so that it could awaken the imagination that we were talking about to get people to think beyond the presence. I'm thoroughly convinced that artists are the vanguard of the species, that artists are the moral and spiritual antenna of the species. So we have to look to them because they're the ones that tend to have the vision where there is no vision, the people perish. They have the courage. Without the great examples of courage, people think life is simply about cowardliness and conformity. And you end up with the spiritually superficial culture of conspicuous consumption and obsession with spectacle and image and status and fame and all of that empty stuff that leaves you vacuous when the worms get your body, you know? So that Mm -hmm. artists in this sense become essential workers in the most fundamental sense of who we are, not just as Americans, but as human beings. Yes, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think when you think about what it takes, so just to go back to Gina's point about Mr. Belafonte's, the nuances of the kinds of collaborations that went into his arrangements, you realize that that's the way you want everyone to approach all kinds of collaborations, intellectual collaborations, workplace collaborations, community collaborations, how to solve police violence, right? You want a nuanced and complex form of arrangements that are emotionally rich, that are reflective and rich. I think it's so important to not just think that musicians are and artists just fix it for us, right? But it's the way in which art is made that Absolutely. helps us right, when move it out of the artistic realm into other places. When I think of those who are come out of the stable, as it were, of the great Harry Belafonte, I think of Arturo O'Farro, who was his uh, director, very, very young brother, Cuban brother, son of Chico O'Farro, who was connected to Dizzy Gillespie, one of the co-founders of Afro-Cuban jazz, that Arturo O'Farro talks about Brother Harry all the time. And he's got a new album out called The Four Questions. He was kind enough to have me on. We did performances at, at the Apollo as well as Birdland and other places. The Four Questions are Du Bois's questions. I won't go into those now because I don't want to advertise. But the point is that it's the legacy at that very concrete level, not just to talk about the fame of Harry Belafonte, 
but it's the concrete loving and shaping and molding that he's had on so many young brothers and sisters of all colors, including myself. Tell us about that, Cornell. Do you remember the first time you met Harry Belafonte and what that was like? Well, I feel like I've been knowing my dear brother all my life, but Mm -hmm. I have been blessed to spend such high quality time with he and Sister Pam in conversation and reflection, just being able to share his insight and visions in terms of where things were in their 40s, 50s, when he used to go see Du Bois and Robeson there in 31 Great Street in Brooklyn, both of them basically under house arrest with passports taken away from both of them. And yet they still walking around with great dignity, no fear whatsoever, telling the truth wherever they could. When he shares those kinds of stories, uh, let alone the close relation with Martin King, I could not walk out more fortified. I mean, what I got from Harry Belafonte fortified me for two, three lifetimes. Mm. So no matter what kind of despair I have, I wake up to despair every day. Good morning, heartache. Yes, absolutely. But there's no despair that can defeat and steal my joy and my memories, given my Sankofa orientation and given my commitment to make the world better. And again, all I can do is kill you anyway. You got to pass it on the way Brother Harry passed it on to the younger generation, Jasiri X. We can go on and on and on in it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Sister Carmen, they're at the Justice League and so Yeah, you know, I was happened to be walking down the street near the main and ran into your father, Gina. And I had met him years ago because I had actually auditioned for a show that he was producing. I know this is weird. It's like another life when I was thought I might be a singer when I grew up. So I asked him on the street, you know, some political questions because I had seen him on TV recently, asked how he was doing. And he stood in the street and I mean, the sidewalk, and we had a 15 minute conversation. And it was so moving and so smart and so genuine and so thoughtful. And I was just some random person. You know, I didn't give any biography. I just said, you know, I've met you before a long time ago and been following some of the recent political work that you've been doing. I'm so grateful. And he just was happy to share. And, you know, this is important because it's that same creative artist spirit and also that commitment on the ground all the way. Absolutely. Up, right? Absolutely. Uh, that was Absolutely. very moving and, and serious. Well, I mean, we could go on and on and on, and unfortunately, we can't. We're running almost out of time. So, Gina, if there's a closing word before we sign off, I'm just wanting to thank you so much for being here, for sharing your work with Sankofa. We didn't get to talk about Daughters of the Movement too much, and I want to really get the uh, audience, if you're here, to look at them online and be involved. We just want to thank you and give you an opportunity to say a closing word. Thank you so much, first of all, to be in this company. And I'm humbled and grateful to have the opportunity and platform to talk about Sankofa.org and our work and my life and legacy. And I do have a closing thought. Sister Maya Angelou said, hope and fear cannot occupy the same space. Invite one of them to stay. Mm. Can't really argue. We want to thank you, Sister Gina. We love you. I love you. You stay strong and safe, all right? Peace and blessings to you all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gina. Wow. That was powerful, wasn't it, Cornell? That was unbelievable. Lord, Lord, Lord. Sister Gina was soaring like an eagle. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think really she represented what you said. We make our own choices. Surely she's got a legacy, but she did what she did with it, right? Exactly. It just took her to another level in her own way. I mean, boy, these podcasts are something else, though. I'm telling you. I know. It's just getting this already. Getting kind of heavy, as they say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we can stay on this tightrope, brother. We, we <laughs> Lord have mercy. It's getting kind of heavy up here on this tightrope. Yeah, it is. Hope and fear cannot occupy the same space. Uh, Bite one in. Ooh. Mm, mm, mm. Thank you for listening to the Tightrope Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to 411 at speakerbox.com. That's the numbers 411 at S-P-K-E-R-B-O-X dot com. The Tightrope Podcast is produced by Speakerbox Media in collaboration with the Podcast Laundry Production Company and is executive produced by Dr. Cornell West, Professor Tricia Rose, and Jeremy Berry. <laughs>